This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back hello welcome to the red box podcast i'm matt chorley bringing you the best of my times radio show monday to thursday 10 till 1 so the tory party virtual conference grinds on i'm sure you've been logging on and trying to tune in the big moment today was rishi sunak's first speech as chancellor so we thought we'd examine what it's like to be britain's most popular politician certainly every time we've carried out one of the focus groups on times radio and you can listen back to them on the podcast we've done three so far it doesn't matter whether they're swing voters or voters in scotland or whatever it might be whenever we ask who's the most popular politician there's only one answer. I think with a guy like Rishi, who came across pretty well, I think done the Conservatives great. Probably Rishi Sunak. He, he, he seemed quite a, like a leader. Rishi Sunak, I think, is just captivating to watch because he's just, just such a good public speaker. Captivating to watch. Not many politicians get that sort of review from swing voters. We've done three of those uh, uh, focus groups now. There's three different clips from each of them. Every time he gets a great uh, reaction from uh, the swing vote as well. Uh, we'll get to see his captivating public speaking shortly when the Chancellor delivers his speech to the Virtual Conservative Party conference at about 10 to 12. And is this the speech of a future Prime Minister? Well, a new Ipsos Mori poll puts him ahead of Boris Johnson on several key measures. 41% say Rishi Sunak is a capable leader compared to 37% who say the same of the current Prime Minister. 54% say Sunak's good in a crisis. 32% say the same of Boris Johnson. Voters also think Rishi Sunak is more honest and understands the problem Britain faces, while more think Boris Johnson is out of touch with ordinary people. But they also think he's more patriotic. Behind the scenes, Tory MPs are starting to grumble. The other day, Johnny Mercer, a government minister, asked in a Tory party WhatsApp group if the graphics promoting government spending could have the logo on it. Uh, the Tory logo on it, not the Rishi Sunak signature, which you've probably seen on all his Instagram stuff. I wrote in my column in The Times on Saturday that the signature leans heavily on the Bradley Hand font in Microsoft Word and lands somewhere between the logos of Walt Disney and a celebrity pasta sauce. I also joked that maybe he won't actually give his speech or just post a picture of himself on Instagram rehearsing for it. And that's exactly what he did this morning. I also spotted that Boris Johnson doesn't actually follow the Chancellor on Instagram. Well, what is Rishi Sunak up to? Here to pick over the personality, the politics and the economics. Uh, I'm joined this morning by uh, Torsten Bell, the Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation. Morning, Torsten. Morning. Uh, we've also got Salma Shah, a former Special Advisor to Savage Javid when he was Home Secretary. Morning, Salma. 
Morning. Morning. And uh, the Times is Oliver Wright, <laughs> who wrote a great piece in the Times at the weekend entitled From Tea with the Taliban to Sunak's Ex-Boss, the Advisors Who Propelled Team Rishi. Morning, Ollie. Morning. Uh, before um, we, we start getting to the economics, let's talk about the team then, Ollie. Just explain who is in Team Rishi. So it's a mixture of people, and it's kind of an intriguing combination. So on the one level, you've got um, someone like Allegra Stratton. Now, she has never been in government before, um, is a long-standing personal friend of Mr Sunak. She used to be a journalist. Indeed, she worked for The Guardian. Perhaps one might not think the most logical place to end up if you end up um, going to work for um, a Conservative Chancellor. So she's heading up the communications. And she, um, alongside uh, a guy called Cass Horovitch, who you may be familiar with the surname, the son of Anthony Horovitch, he is the sort of social media guru behind uh, the Sunak signature. So they've really created this sort of personal brand for Sunak, which, you know, some in the Conservative Party uh, are a little bit leery of, you know, rather than being sort of part of the team. There's a, a sense that he is building his own you know, separate profile and indeed some would suspect their own separate um, power base. But then you've got, you know, the economic advisors as well. And he's got some really quite interesting people around him, um, some of whom are perhaps were seen more as kind of Dominic Cummings um, acolytes to begin with, but do appear to have moved pretty firmly over to the sort of institutional treasury viewpoint. Um, they include a guy called Mike Webb, who um, is only um, if 30 of that. Um, he was a he got the top first in economics at Oxford, um, during which time he took himself off to Afghanistan and stayed with Rory Stewart, who you may remember, was um, <laughs> once ran against Boris Johnson for the leadership, and there he went and met the Taliban. Um, that wasn't enough for him, so after that he went off to uh, Stanford, um, where he did a doctorate in economics and looking at the impact of artificial intelligence on the labour market. Now, he just applied for a job in the government. He, he, he applied to um, one of those weirdos and misfits um, uh, jobs that Dominic Cummings um, advertised at the back end of um, back end of last year, and he was uh, quite surprised to um, get called back and asked to go into the Treasury as a special advisor. So he's an interesting character. Um, then you've got a guy called Liam Booth Price, who was um, he he started off working in the Department of Housing um, before being brought into Downing Street to help out. And when um, Sajid Javid left the Chancellorship. Um, he was one of the people who was brought in to run this sort of joint economic unit between number 10 and number 11. But he seems to be very, very much part of Team Sunak now. So there is a divergence between the sort of Sunak team in the Treasury in Downing Street, even though, of course, when one of the reasons when, when Sajid went was the idea to try and make the two teams a little bit more united. <laughs> uh, yes, Sam, that's, of course, um, Ollie's right, isn't he? That your old boss, uh, Sajid Javid, he was the Chancellor. He quit because... Uh, he wouldn't accept this idea of a merged team of advisors between number 10 and number 11 um, and because number 10 wanted a more pliant, cooperative uh, chancellor. And they've, they've sort of created a monster instead with Rishi Sunak. Yeah, I think it's be careful what you wish for. And also like the, the sort of basics of the fact that number 10 in the Treasury don't really get along is just true. It doesn't matter what you do to try and change the structure of it. Um, it. There's got to be that natural creative tension between those two institutions. And I think this is sort of slightly proving the point. It doesn't mean that it's it's dysfunctional or that there are kind of like uh, tensions overspilling, um, but it just means that, it, that that creative tension has to exist, I think. 
Well, it, um, George Osborne uh, tries to, in fact, I think Rishi Sunak does speak to George Osborne quite a lot um, for advice. And that in the summer, George Osborne spoke to Danny Finkelstein when he was sitting in on this programme. And he, he, he basically praised the way that number t- the, Rishi was trying to work with uh, the new number 10. And he praised the imagination that Rishi Sunak was showing. Well, I don't, that's one of those trick questions, isn't it? Uh, well. uh, that, that'll be William Hague, isn't it? Uh, let's, let's, let's see if we can hear from George Osborne now. He's very impressive. He, by the way, I think illustrates, yeah, I would say in this government, without being too disrespectful to everyone else, you know, where are the kind of interesting ideas coming from, largely from the Treasury? It's one of the great myths, actually, of the last two prime ministers, both Boris Johnson and Theresa May, that they're sort of anti-Treasury. You know, they should go and look at the front door of number 10. It says First Lord of the Treasury. And and chance, uh, prime ministers like David Cameron, uh, who know how to use the Treasury and get on with their chancellor, can can become, you know, can, can, it can enormously enhance their power. And Rishi is using the brilliant civil servants of the Treasury and to come up with some really original ideas, everything from the... You know, the, the restaurant help scheme that we've seen this August to the furlough scheme, you know, really original policy responses to an unprecedented situation at the moment. So, you know, he, Rishi is impressive. The Treasury is being impressive and, and doing what it does best. So that was George Osborne speaking to Danny Finkelstein earlier in the summer here on Times Radio. Let's bring in Torsten Bell, the Chief Executive of the Resolution Foundation. It's all going very well. He's, he's lots of imagination. Everyone's working brilliantly well. It's all fine. Uh, well, it is all fine. It's the country that we are more focused on. And obviously the dual challenge <laughs> the government's got this autumn is that it's got to keep the virus rates down and also keep the unemployment rate down. And that is where you know the tough times start for the Chancellor, because not only is he having to wrestle with being a Chancellor in a recession with unemployment rising, but he will also be wrestling with how does he keep control of the public finances during that time. So I think the Chancellor has had the kind of easy bit of his chancellorship, the the real questions about whether he can navigate much tougher economic and political times are about to start. Uh, and you've also written about a specific policy in particular, uh, where there's a striking similarity between Rishi Sunak and George Osborne that he might not necessarily appreciate. Well, they're not similar in lots of ways, but they both are heading to a Tory party conference, in this case, Rishi this year, and George Osborne five years ago with having to defend the idea that they're going to take almost exactly a £1,000 off uh, millions of benefit claimants in six months' time. And this is one of those unusual benefit cuts that the people affected will definitely notice because they will just see their weekly payment go down immediately overnight as April starts next year. This is this is as the Chancellor plans to reverse the increase in universal credit that he rightly put in place in the middle of the lockdown to make sure that the system was more generous, as you saw a lot of people who were used to earning decent amounts come on into universal credit as they lose their jobs. And obviously, back in 2015, the then Chancellor was doing that to save money in the public finances, and he had to U-turn about a month and a half after the Conservative conference in 2015, when Tory MPs realised they didn't want kind of 30% of their constituents losing over £1,000 overnight in the following April. And that is basically, this is just one of the examples of where the easy phase of being a chance when you're doling out cash is about to be replaced by a much more difficult phase where the chancellor is trying to do tough things. In this case, he just shouldn't be doing it because it doesn't make sense in terms of 
the living standards of those individuals, £600 on average coming off household incomes for the bottom half of the population, 7% income fall for the bottom fifth. But it also doesn't make any sense on the macroeconomics if you think about where we are in this recovery. Come April, we're going to have very high, possibly even still rising unemployment. We need to be supporting the economy. And that is, you know, as I say, for macro reasons, as well as for the individuals concerned, we shouldn't be cutting benefits right now. If you like what you're hearing, you can listen to the whole of my Times Radio show. Either listen back on the Times Radio app or you can listen live Monday to Thursday, 10 till 1. We'll have more on the episode after this. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. There's also obviously a risk to being seen as the PM in waiting. We'll hear from William Hague now. He was on the show a couple of months ago. And I asked him if, if Rishi Sunak, who actually took over William Hague's uh, seat, uh, his constituency in Yorkshire, Richmond, I asked him if he thought that Rishi Sunak has got what it takes to become PM. Well, I don't, that's one of those trick questions, isn't it? Uh, where, um, you know, it sounds like a fair question, but really then it, it's, um, you know, we all get accused of talking somebody up as prime minister too early. We, we've got a prime minister who's just been elected in his own landslide in, uh, in December. And I think Rishi would be the first to say it's far too early to talk about things like that. Has he got fantastic potential for the future? Yes, he has. Um, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it's far too early to say um, who's going to be the next leader of the Conservative Party. And I think it's always a bit unfair on ministers who do a really good job, actually, that they, they immediately get talked up as a, <laughs> as, as a future prime. But what are they meant to do? Are they meant to do an incompetent job? Yes, to, to avoid, to avoid to, being talked OK, well, let's talk... About, you know, to, to not be the person who for a while is talked about as the inevitable future leader. And I think they all know that a lot of people have held the office of the next prime minister. So are we all getting a bit overexcited, Salma Shah? Um, I wrote my column in The Times on Saturday, basically saying, is he just, everyone just gets excited about Richie Sunak because he's quite good. He, you know, he can string a sentence together, he can wear, he can put on a, a sharp suit, uh, he can express some empathy with the people he's talking about. It's only in comparison to all the other useless puddings in the cabinet that, that seems like a sort of, makes him a political giant. <laughs> 
I think he's just got this really reassuring style and manner that is very unique to him. And you're right, it does look different to everybody else in the cabinet and that he's going out there and he's being front-footed and sure-footed in the things that he's doing. Um, but yeah, you know, people are always in this rush to find the next big thing. And it's kind of like we've only, as William Hague rightly pointed out, we've only just had a landslide election. There's a long way to go. Um, before you write off um, the prime minister. So I think people are getting ahead of themselves. And it's always, I remember a political journalist once saying to me, you know, back in the heady days when Sajid Javid was going to be the next prime minister, is that it doesn't <laughs> matter really what you do. Um, it's about other people's anxiety around their own ambitions. So people just get furtive when they see, you know, their political rivals being successful. And that is kind of like a big driver for sort of, you know, tearing um, each other down. And I think that is um, true, actually. So I think there's a long way to go before Boris Johnson's ever really in any kind of serious trouble. There'll always be grumblings on the backbenches. Um, and I think Rishi has been sensible, you know, despite all the social media and all that, um, that's just par for the course um, in in not pushing his um, ambitions too far. Well, it turns out he's not very good at timekeeping. We were expecting to have his speech starting right now, and it's still uh, Therese Coffey addressing a, a, a room of socially distanced robots in a virtual um, party <laughs> conference uh, setting. So I don't think he's about... I would it. have loved this conference. I would have, this is the kind of conference that I would have enjoyed working on, to be honest with you, very, very nicely distanced. Yeah, well, it just means you wouldn't be able to shout at me in person when you were, uh, when you were exactly. working for the talk. You would have enjoyed it too. <laughs> I love all conferences. It's, they're all a lot of fun. Um, Ollie, let's bring Ollie Wright back in, uh, policy editor of The Times. What do you pick up amongst Tory MPs about uh, Rishi Sunak? Is he still flavour of the month or, or is this, there's been some grumbling on WhatsApp groups and that sort of thing. Is it is it just the inevitable, you know, super fast rise in stardom it, it, that's bound to tail off a little bit? Yes, of course it is. I mean, I think there's two there's two conflicting things going on here, really. Um, the one thing they do like about him is that he is speaking their language um, much more than the Prime Minister is in terms of keeping the economy going. I mean, there is, as you saw with that um, rebellion led by Graham Brady, who's chairman of the 1922 committee, a powerful faction of the Conservative Party who thinks that Downing Street has gone too far on the health restrictions and that really, you know, the danger lies in the future, unless you keep the economy working, things are going to be really, really grim, not just for you know, the next six months, but potentially for several years to come. So Sunak's um, messaging on that, that he is in favour of keeping the economy going, that, you know, living with the virus, etc., that is resonating um, very much among Tory MPs, and they prefer his version of that than they do the Prime Minister's. And I think it's quite interesting that Boris sort of leaned into the Sunak version when he um, did a round of interviews yesterday. Um, but on the other hand, you know, they are not convinced that they like the sort of brand Sunak, as we've been talking about. Um, you know, the slight feeling of, you know, who is this upstart? Is he getting ahead of himself? You know, he is part of the party. He, you know, he is only in his position by dint of the fact that, you know, Boris Johnson gave it to him and that, you know, he shouldn't be too grand. And I think there is a <laughs> slight feeling on the backbenches that Sunak is a distant figure. They find it harder to um, get in touch with him and team team Sunak, and weirdly they do with Downing Street. Boris is a bit more accessible in these fairly inaccessible times. So there's a sort of, there's a bit of kind of personal sniping going on, but equally in terms of the sort of policy positioning, they are, they are quite impressed by him. 
Uh, yeah, no, I, I wrote at the weekend that he, there's a slight air of innocent smoothies trying to pretend they're not, <laughs> uh, they're not now owned by Coca-Cola. It's all sort of, you know, it's all a bit trendy stuff. And, um, yeah, it's not part of the big government machine and the Tory party and everything that comes with that. Um, Torsten Bell from the Resolution Foundation. It doesn't, well, certainly from what was pre-briefed, it didn't sound like we were going to get very much from Rishi Sunak in terms of uh, new direction, in terms of more reassuring language. What are the sort of as well as that benefit cut you were talking about earlier, what are the other things that we should be keeping an eye on? The, the ending schemes or the, you know, the, 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 the planned changes or the, what, what are the bear traps that he needs to sort of not fall into? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously very unusual to have a Chancellor's conference speech being pre-briefed as not including any new announcements. I mean, I can't, I can't think, I don't remember that ever happening in the you know, 15 years I've been involved in this uh, business. But then again, I haven't also seen one during a pandemic and I haven't seen one delivered over, you know, a complicated version of Zoom that doesn't appear to work very well. So these are all kinds <laughs> of firsts going on uh, at the moment. I mean, look, in the big picture terms, what we're seeing is a ramping back up of the social distancing restrictions over the course of this autumn as the virus gets going again. And then alongside that, the government wrestling with the fact that they were previously aiming to phase out the policy support by the end of this month. That's why the job retention scheme comes to an end at the end of October. And the government's loan schemes were meant to come to an end in the first week of November. So what they're then deciding is how much do they want to ramp back up that level of support. And so far, they've gone for kind of halfway houses. So we've got on the loan support to business, they're extended them to the end of the year. And I then expect those schemes to be replaced with less than 100% guarantees that look more like the kind of lending schemes you saw after the financial crisis. So basically, the employer, sorry, the lender, i.e. the banks pays a small fee for, for an 80% or a 75% government guarantee. That's probably where they are heading on that side of things. And then obviously on jobs, which I think is where the main thing for the economics and the politics of the next kind of six months is heading. They've they've announced a kind of, again, a halfway house replacing the furlough scheme with a version of the existing kind of partial furlough scheme. That's people who are working some of their usual hours, but not all of them, with the government paying some of the wages for their hours they're not working. The problem with that, as we pointed out on the day it was announced, is that if that is meant to make a big difference to unemployment levels, it probably won't. And that's because it doesn't give firms the incentive they would need, which is an incentive to cut hours, to share out the pain by cutting hours rather than cutting jobs. So two people can work, say, half time rather than one person working full time. It doesn't do that because it makes firms pay more if they want to work like that. So I'd have thought they may want to come back later this autumn, either to revisit how much they're asking employers to pay towards that scheme. And remember, this is not about continuing the further scheme. It's not about paying people not to work, but it is about helping firms keep as many people on the books as possible. And then they'll also want to, as you're seeing over the last few days, come back to issues like training, back to work support for the increasing numbers of people that we're seeing coming on to out of work benefits. And they'll also, they should be in the business of actually actively creating some jobs, particularly in the likes of social care or home retrofitting, where you've got a good potential to create a large number of jobs where we know we can make it happen quickly, which is a key test at the moment. Uh, thanks for that, Torsten Bell. Uh, just finally then, um, Ollie and Salma, it, well, Salma in particular, it were Rishi Sunak to pick up the phone to you uh, and say, what do you suggest I do, Salma, to make sure that my enormous popularity continues? What would you suggest? Don't do anything at all. I think the, whole, I think the <laughs> most difficult thing in a situation like this is actually not to lean into it. it. Let things take their natural course. And quite often, especially in politics, when you're furtive, 
and control freak and need to, I mean, I'm saying all politicians are, not Rishi in particular, um, is to try and manage the situation. Let it go. Don't overdo it. Don't be try hard. Ollie White, um, you, you, you catalogued the team working for him. What, what would you suggest that they're saying to him? I think he needs to start creating a narrative around how difficult things are going to be, um, not just this year, but next year and the year after that. I think he's done a bit of that so far, but I don't think the public really understand the scale of the pain that is coming down the track. And if he wants to avoid the blame for that, he needs to start really getting that message across and cutting through long before he actually has to inflict that pain. Otherwise, you know, the popularity that he's seeing now could be very, very much reversed in the, in, by the end of next year. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box podcast. Uh, you can now listen back to my whole show on the Times Radio app, where you can also now listen to all of the Times podcasts, including Red Box 2. Make sure you subscribe and review the Red Box podcast wherever you listen. But for now, from me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.